Welcome back to another episode of Timber Connect. We're here to help forest enthusiasts explore their curiosities among like-minded people. People who embrace innovation, strive to make a difference, and aspire to continuously improve how we manage our forests. My name is Ty, and in each episode, Julie and I will be diving into research, contentious forestry issues, and industry perspectives from the professionals you want to hear from. Welcome back to the Timber Connect podcast, everyone. Ty and Julie here. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with the Director of Conservation Stewardship Programs at the BC Wildlife Federation, Neil Fletcher. Neil holds a BSc in Environmental Science from Guelph University, a BSc in Conservation Biology from the University of Ottawa, and a Master's of Resource Management from Simon Fraser University. Neil has long been involved with various conservation initiatives across British Columbia, with his most recent work centered on wetland conservation and education. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Neil. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. We usually like to start the podcast out in a similar fashion and, and just help our audience get to know you a bit better by maybe providing a bit of a background. Sounds great. Well, you mentioned my schooling, and I guess um, I guess I started on the trajectory of getting into the environment in high school. You know, you're kind of forced to make a decision of where you want to go. And it's really, uh, you know, it feels like it's only a couple of weeks where you have to make that big decision of where you're going to end up. I was in an art school at the time, and I thought I was going to be a, you know, a well-known visual artist for a long time, like in high school. And then I realized after speaking to some adults that were doing it, that it's, it's really challenging. And well, I took a world issues course uh, in high school and that teacher, I think, opened my eyes to my little suburban life that I was having. And I realized, you know, there's a big world out there and there's a lot of important things to do in the world. And maybe I should go into environmental science and push myself outside of my comfort zone, which at the time was uh, more into the arts and less into the sciences. So so that's where it started. Um, my first job into wetlands was a few years later. It was a co-op position with the South Nation Conservation Authority. It's a a watershed authority in Ontario. Um, and they asked me to write a management plan for a wetland, a provincially significant wetland. And I was like, why are, <laughs> why are they hiring a student to do this? Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I, I took the job seriously and I had such a fun time learning about wetlands throughout that position. There was a biologist who probably 20 years my senior uh, who I got to go out with one day. And I just remember that experience so well, even 15 years later. I think I admired the work he did. Like he could work in the office on rainy days and then go out into the field and do some field investigations on days that were nice and sunny. And I was just like, wow, that seems like such a great job. The visit to the wetland, I think, was a transformative experience for me where I realized how awesome these unique ecosystems are. Right as soon as we stepped into the wetland, um, I had a soaker. Like I, I just, my boot was full of water. And so I was in it, right? Like it, we, it, there was no turning back at that point. <laughs> so we walked through this sort of swampy area that nobody goes into. This is just um, at the south end of Ottawa, just right close to sort of this urban complex. So you, you don't expect to see um, half the things that you'd see because nobody's going into these areas. They're just, they're not hospitable to humans. Uh, but that's actually pretty great because they're hospitable to all these uh, wildlife that use it as refugia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, within that walk, I remember seeing pitcher plants and rare orchids and these 
ancient white pine, which are, uh, you know, unheard of because like there was so much forestry that happened in Ontario many, many years ago. But it just this one little grove that was hard to access because the wetland uh, still remained. I think that got me the bug to be excited (laughs) about wetlands. And then I came out to uh, BC, studied musk deer in Nepal for my master's, which is totally random. And then I got a job with the BC Wildlife Federation just at the end of my graduate degree. And it was about doing like wetland education programming as like, oh, yeah, wetlands. I remember those. Those were really fun. So then I got to share sort of my love of wetlands with people in BC, which has been such an awesome position to have. And yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a it's not so much of a job as something just that I've loved. And, you know, getting paid to do something you love is a pretty awesome, awesome deal. Yeah. What else can you ask for? Mm hmm. Yeah, I really relate to that is is the teaching aspect, having just worked in the bush previous to this job and then getting to teach. It just like reminds you how much you really like what <laughs> you went to school for. And it just really reignites that passion. I really like the metaphor with when you when you get your boots wet for the first time and you are now you, you have now become one with the wetland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's been so many times where I've, I've taken somebody out for their first time and, you know, they get a soaker. I'm like, you're in it now. Like you yeah. can't turn around. Like you might as well have just brought a swimsuit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Neil, would you be able to give our audience a bit of an overview about your current role as director of conservation stewardship programs with the BC Wildlife Federation? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess like within the BC Wildlife Federation, we run a number of conservation projects. The wetlands program was one of the first, um, but at the same, like while I was running this wetlands program in, in the early days, I was also running kids camps in the summer. You know, over the years, I was like, I, I think we really need somebody to bring in who can be an expert in youth programming. Mm. There's a lot to unpackage in youth programming in general. And so, yeah, so so eventually we, we did get a youth coordinator and now they're a youth manager. And uh, we've, and then more recently, We've just been recognizing within our organization, uh, we represent hunters and anglers from around the province and um, fish are are a big part of that culture. And we decided we would take on and and start a fish habitat restoration and education program as well. So uh, we do have a coordinator for that, a manager for the youth program and a manager for the wetlands program. So I've, I think the conservation stewardship department of BC Wildlife Federation is, is, is a group of people that are doing, you know, really great education work. Uh, I've offered for youth and for fish to sort of support them as our wetlands program has become relatively successful. I, I wanted to like support the team and provide advice. And at first I thought, it, oh, this will just be easy. Just, we'll just talk about things and They'll keep their programs going. And that's sort of how it's been. Like we've, we meet every couple weeks and just check in and see where we're at. Yeah. And so there's, uh, there's quite a range of activities that we're doing, lots of programming around BC related to all those programs. And I'd say that wetlands still probably occupy about 80% of my bandwidth. Last year, we also ran a uh, economic stimulus initiative with uh, some funding from the province and we hired a uh, hundred people uh, collectively uh, among seven organizations, put them back to work and give them safe jobs during the pandemic. It was, uh, that took a lot of my bandwidth, but I have a great team and, and, and really like the youth programs and the fish program are, are really kind of finding their footing and uh, doing some really great work as well. 
That is awesome. So the other programs, like your wetland program, who is that aimed at? I would call them like sort of the stewardship community. And this, the stewardship community can be people that are the weekend warriors, the ones that might be a dentist in the on the weekdays, and then I just have a passion for conserving wetlands in a volunteer role, all the way to um, working with industry consultants, First Nations, the province itself. Like we we've, we do a lot of work to support anything that's related to the conservation of wetland or fish habitat type work. So I you know I think the audience is pretty broad. Um, it's more more geared towards mostly geared towards adults, but we do get invited by schools and so have developed a number of things that working with the youth program to integrate that into the work that they do as well. So it's um yeah, and I, I think like our goal is really to build a community of stewards that can better protect and conserve wetlands. And I mean through that work we've we've realized, you know, there's gaps. There's gaps in the way that we're protecting wetlands, for instance, or conserving wetlands. And there's few tools in BC that had been developed uh, when we started. And we just decided that we were going to start building tools uh, to support that kind of work as well. So uh, some of the work that I've been involved in is uh, either contracts with the province or just developing tools for our stewardship groups to use and implement in their watersheds and things like that, which has been a very satisfying uh, part of the job as well. As I'm really excited to ask you about your wetlands workforce project and the tools you created, but we've mentioned the, t- the term wetland a couple times. Do you mind if we take it back a step and go down to our bare basics and explain to our audience what constitutes a wetland? What is a wetland? Yeah, absolutely. They are where you have water that is present near the surface of the landscape. And so unlike their cousins would be called like rivers or riparian areas, these sort of wetted stream areas. In contrast, wetlands generally have slower flow of water. The plant communities that establish at these sites are very different than the plant communities up in a terrestrial environment. There's a there's a mixture of different types. I, I normally talk about three ingredients of a wetland. So you have the presence of water, soils that have adapted to the, that presence of water as well as plants that have adapted to that presence of water. And when you have that, you have this magical type of ecosystem that forms and creates these wetlands. And there's a there's a broad range of types of wetlands out there. There's five classes that we have in BC. Some of them are organic or based with organic soils. Some of them have mineral soils. Um, there's a range of structural diversity from open water with the lily pads all the way to these uh, closed-in forested areas. I think important maybe for your community in terms of like the forestry community, what I've noticed is that just from some of the work we've been doing with forestry in general is there probably is a need for more education around wetlands and like how to do the cruising around them and mark them out. Generally speaking, the cut blocks that I've gone to are are able to avoid wetlands a lot of the time and, and keep them well. The, the, the few mistakes I've seen is where they might not have been delineated properly. So there's a mistake with the operator going in and cutting into it too close or something. And so those are the areas where I think there could be some education for people that are out doing the woods and are more focused probably on the, the timber aspects of what's out there. Hmm. Yeah. Aside from that, though, I mean, there's some people that are really great at it and it just it's, it's a diversity of, of people. But we haven't had a lot of tools previously to to look at delineating. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of great education out there. A lot of people I talked to, they might have had one course in university, but it was relatively theoretical. 
Yeah, I'm in the exact same boat. <laughs> like for me, from an operational sense, actually, I recall, Julie, the first time you and I even met well before Stillwater was just randomly in the woods one time <laughs> yeah. on a yeah. <laughs> different company. Uh, I was doing the terrain stability assessment, but it was a block that had tons of internal wetlands. Yes. And one thing that I recall about from the forestry operational sense is that a lot of it is dictated by size. So our management practices are almost directly correlated with how big the wetland is. Do you think that that's actually reflective of proper management strategies? Or do you think there's a better way that we could go to, about it other than just, well, the wetland's this big, so it gets this big of a buffer? Yeah, I mean, from a regulatory perspective, it's hard for me to say, like, we do a lot of consulting and sort of trying to get public opinion, First Nation opinion on that topic. And I think there's definitely people that are questioning, you know, if uh, size matters in terms of wetland. Some of the smaller wetlands that you have can provide still very important habitat and are kind of the ones that are ignored. Well, they don't have any buffer. Like sometimes you still have to do some treatments around it, but you can still harvest all the trees. And in, in some cases, it, that might be okay. It's probably context specific in terms of, you know, drier habitats with less small wetlands are probably more important. And I don't know if I really want to make that right now but you know or like say that that's the thing but you know if in a drier environment they're, they're just more rare right and so yeah. uh you could imagine wildlife is going to have a harder time finding it in more wetted environments they still could be really important uh, i mean we have lots of amphibians that breed in our small wetlands they, they don't need a, a large wetland to breed in and their populations rely on these sort of smaller ephemeral wetlands that might not have fish or things like that. So they can be really important. I think from a regulatory perspective, I think we lack sufficient science to necessarily back up a lot of like where we should be going with it. I think, it, I mean, it's not bad to think of larger wetlands being important and needing buffers around them. And I, I think we need even more science just on sort of like the intent of those buffers and, and how they're treated in general around sites. But um, prior to working for the BC Wildlife Federation, I worked for Canadian Forest Service uh, in Ottawa for a little bit and had the opportunity to work with like the biodiversity, their biodiversity branch. And one of the things I was looking at was how are forests managed around Canada related to biodiversity. And that forest practices code was probably the, one of the stronger pieces of legislation out there among the other provinces that provided clear kind of guidance or around how to treat wetlands. And I know that's a bit outdated now, but I know that a lot of people still kind of follow it as a policy. All in all, like, I'm pretty happy with a lot of what's happening. And one of the things we're really interested in is uh, resource roads right now and sort of how those might be affecting the hydrology of a lot of our wetlands as well. Ooh, I'd be really interested to see some information about that. Let's talk next year, because this year we're, we're implementing a bit of a pilot study to visit some wetlands that are intersected by roads, and we're hoping to do a bit of a health assessment on how they're doing and which ones are doing well or not. I know that happens for streams already, like within the forestry world, and pretty sure it's not uh, applicable to wetlands yet. So yeah, we're going to look around and see what we find. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely stay tuned for some information. I kind of wanted to extend a little bit more on the science stuff, because from my experience, again, with from the operational forestry side of things. Surveying a wetland was just to the extent of walking the, the perimeter with a GPS or a Garmin and, as you said, delineating the boundary. What does surveying a wetland look like from your perspective? Like, What kind of information are you collecting? Yeah, um, good good question. And I think that it's interesting because I, I don't know if it came up in your research, but we developed like a 
forest range evaluation program, wetland health assessment tool. And in the development of that, I like some of the early conversations I was having with people that were in the forestry world, they were saying, wetlands, that's just like where we try to keep our equipment like out of because we don't want to get bogged into them. You know, like that's sort of like the, <laughs> that, that would seem like part of the rationale on why they were avoiding them in the first place. Um, within that protocol, we, we do transects like into the wetland and it's been really great to like work with foresters in the last few years and see like them being like, oh, wow, there's like all this cool stuff. Like once you get past that boundary, <laughs> so, so they're like, oh, this is what we're protecting kind of thing. There's different things you could look at for health. And I, I think like if I'm just trying to narrow it down to, to that, there's all sorts of things you can to get out of it. Two of the major protocols that we'd be looking at are what's the health of the wetland? So what's its current condition and what kind of threats are potentially going to impact that wetland? And then the other thing we look at, which is not necessarily integrated super well yet into the forestry realm is ecosystem services of wetlands and sort of trying to better describe and prepare a language of what are the varieties of ecosystem services that these wetlands are providing. And there's actually like a whole list of things that wetlands are providing to society for free, like flood attenuation, temperature support for streams, fire breaks, carbon storage in the, in the peatlands that are there. So there's a whole whack load of ecosystem services. And we, we haven't to yet in BC had a real strong language around that. We do have a protocol that looks at sort of a rapid assessment of those. If you work with some consultants, they'll go, they'll do deep dives into like one particular wetland and really start to measure everything that's in it. We've been trying to develop these tools that are kind of, what can you, what can we get out of a day of visiting a wetland kind of thing? So we, we've been working on that just in the last couple of years, the health assessment stuff, which is more related to the work that I was doing with forestry and range. I, it was, I think we started with range and trying to figure out cattle impacts and things like that. I think those are sort of the two other tools. So when you're looking at health, for instance, uh, just going back to that, you're looking at impacts to water timing, water levels, how, how might the site be adjusting? Uh, you're looking at the plant community, or invasive species starting to show up at the site or, you know, is there a good composition of species on the site? You're looking for erosion issues that might be happening at the site. The treatment of the buffer, quality of the buffer uh, is something that we're looking at. I think hydrology probably drives a lot of the issues that you might see on the site. And then, yeah, and from a functional assessment, we, we have like a list of 50 questions in the fields that we have people gather and then uh, we overlay that with the geospatial information. And so we do a bit of a desktop review as well. Right. Okay. Are we talking about your wetland ecosystem services protocol that you guys were mm -hmm. creating? That's correct, right? Yeah. So I guess there's like the health tool and then the functional assessment tool. Uh, and it, it gets uh, complicated because we use the word function in both of them. It's like uh, in health, we look at if it, is it properly functioning? Normally we're looking for stressors. And then on the other side, functional assessment tools, we're looking at what are the functions this wetland is providing. And that's what the wetland ecosystem services protocol tool does. Right. And that's relatively new for BC. It's there's, there's been like an Ontario, they've had protocol like this for the over 20 years wow. in Alberta. It's integrated into regulation already. You go down to Washington. I meet people that are working for the ministry of like their version of the ministry of transportation that are taking this training. And I'm like, wow. wow. <laughs> so we're behind, we're behind on that kind of that, end of things. And so mm -hmm. uh, we've been working with a professor out of this state of Oregon who uh, has 
developed this tool and has been working on them since the 80s to bring something in here to BC, sort of adapt it for what's in BC. And and then we're just kind of unpackaging how we can use that more in our own like context. Right. Mm-hmm. Once we're able to use that more operationally, once it becomes more of a thing in BC, who are the people that are going to be going to the wetlands to collect the data? Like can registered professional foresters do it or forestry techs, or does it have to be RP bios or... Yeah, that's a good question. There's no regulation in BC in terms of who can use it. We were taking out people that were really fresh to, you know, they they just started in the environmental world with the the work we did last year, at least. People under 30 was like one of the things that w- like was one of our demographics for the the funding we had. But we had them involved in, in it. And normally we had a, like a crew lead that was with them that was a, a bit more experienced. We did have a QA, QC process for some of that. So we, we took some of the data that was collected, and then we pass it to a, a qualified professional to review the data. And actually, one of the cool things we did last year is we had 360 cameras. So we took 360 camera images in the wetland and then shared that with a professional ecologist. And so he was he was able to like kind of validate at least the, the plots that we were doing and, and say, you know, these are, yeah, that is a WMO2 marsh type community, for instance. Wow, that's really cool. Who's going to use it in the future for this particular tool? I'd say, it, I think it depends on how it like integrates into regulation. But I think I could see stewardship groups maybe using it to better understand their pet wetland, like the wetland that they really love and mm-hmm. you know they live next to, or that the, you know their stewardship group is trying to support. The, the way the tools developed is we we're focusing on eco provinces right now, so we're going going into an eco province and we have to collect about 100 sites sort of as reference sites. And then any other wetland that you go into, you you'd go through the list of questions and you'd know how that wetland performs functions relative to other ones in that eco-province. And so what kind of information that's providing, I think is maybe it could link into forestry. I definitely have to sort of figure out how that would work with the province and stuff. We brought it in originally because we were working to work with the Environmental Sustainability Initiative in the Skeena region, and it's a government-to-government project. And wetlands became a were highlighted as one of the key values uh, with the First Nations that are in that area. And a lot of the commentary was around the functions and the values of those functions and how important they are to the communities that live there. And it made me realize, you know, well, geez, we should probably get something like this started because like what they're saying is, you know, is all valid and we need a way of having this dialogue and being able to talk about these wetlands. One of the, ish- one of the issues is right now, like we do have their water sustainability acts right now. It's, it's really up to the discretion of the, the decision maker or the reviewer on how any impacts to the wetlands are dealt with or mitigated against. So it's really challenging for them without any tools. They know this wetlands on the landscape. Maybe it's important. Maybe it's the last one or the rarest one of this type, or, but we, we don't have a context or a framework to sort of look at those wetlands and make good decisions around them. I think that in the future, anytime there's a wetland that might be questioned for doing some development work around, you could use that tool and better understand its context. Is it Mm-hmm. You know, is it super valuable? And and really, this is might be the only one that ha- like scores really high, and that might be enough to suggest that we should do more to protect it and maybe avoid or avoid it. Versus, you know, maybe a development 
activity, like a linear feature, like a road or something, does have to go through it. And then in that case, uh, what are we losing? Yeah, so it's a tool to sort of provide that sort of decision-making support. Right. Along that same line, I remember reading in the report the importance of keeping cultural knowledge that may be associated with wetlands confidential. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you're able to speak to how we can balance keeping that important knowledge confidential, but still protecting those areas from harvesting. That's a good question. And I think I think the key is to work with the First Nations in the area and have them have the ability to weigh in on the projects that are being proposed in their territory. Like I recognize that some information they don't want to have public and they are the keepers of that information. And so became apparent, like as we were developing this tool is, you know, it's easy to maybe measure flood attenuation, Mm -hmm. but it's a little bit harder to measure uh, what's valuable to a First Nation. It can be varied. And instead of trying to make something too general, that would not be necessarily considered, you know, adequate. It's almost better to have like the two things kind of dovetail together where you'd have a decision-making tool from like the functional pieces that are, you know, measurable or quantifiable and aren't necessarily going to change. And then there's like the cultural piece that can be really unique and different, sort of layered on top and, and really kind of just looking at it that way. Yeah, we've been thinking about just developing more of a checklist when we're working with First Nations to better understand like sort of what they might want to use if they were looking at wetlands so we can kind of help support if we could support like you know how they might want to perceive that wetland or you know and it could be that they have cultural artifacts or paths or some sort of older site that had mm-hmm. been used nearby and they don't want people to necessarily go in and look for things there so there's all sorts of reasons why you'd want to keep it confidential and yeah in the FREP tool I think it's like this one of the first questions is, have you contacted the nation to invite them out to, to come and join you on this? And I think that's just really important like in terms of reconciliation that we're all thinking about that. I agree. Yeah, that's really, really good information to have. So Neil, I have a question for you. I have a friend who's looking into maybe starting a project using beavers for ecological restoration. And I was curious what your thoughts were on using beavers as a tool. Yes, beavers. Okay, so beavers are these sometimes maligned animals that are on our landscape that mm-hmm. especially in forestry people are not big fans <laughs> no yeah people love them or they hate them and <laughs> yeah. i think that they do play a role in our ecosystems and i think we're, we're just starting to figure out what that research looks like um if you go back in time to uh i think the mid 50s or 60s there was a, a state in the u.s that parachuted beavers back into the landscape they literally dropped them from the air onto the landscape and you can find videos of it um, <laughs> and so they were trying to recolonize them because they realized that the beavers actually play a pretty important function uh, one for one thing that i'm always excited about when i think about beavers is that they're recreating wetlands they're starting new wetlands or they might be going back to an old site one thing is they don't have to go through all the permitting that is required if you are a human trying to make a dam on a site. And so they can create a lot of habitat and really rich habitat. So if you go back to an old one that's been dammed for a long time, it turns into this really productive type of wetland over time. You'll have lots of things using it. Waterfowl, for instance, can can uh, make a lot of use out of that and, and create like a really unique and, and interesting landscape. Now, uh, I think where we run into issues is where beavers are uh, impacting things that we like. 
mm-hmm. or infrastructure. Uh, sometimes fish passage can be an issue too. And mm-hmm. there's sort of a debate right now in terms of how much are these beaver actually stopping fish passage. In some cases, it might be true. In some other cases, it might not be as much of an issue. Mm-hmm. There are definitely, I think there's a movement towards it, towards integrating beaver more into the landscape. I've talked to quite a few people that are very excited about this. There's studies on creating these beaver analogs where you like basically do like a starter kit for a beaver and you'll put like logs into the stream or a creek and beavers will like swim by it and go like, ooh, that looks like a good spot to build a wetland or like to build a dam. And then uh, in Ontario, there's this beaver whisperer uh, that was on uh, David Suzuki uh, show uh, around beavers. And he, he was a beaver whisperer. He's using a ghetto blaster and playing the sound of running water. to get the beaver to build dams where they could hear the running water. So there's a lot of like really, I think, probably fun work that could be involved in it. Yeah. I think there's still some permitting that needs to be figured out about building those analogs. You still Mm -hmm. would likely need to get a permit to do that type of work. And I think the other thing is, um, I think where we're seeing opportunities probably in the upper watersheds, maybe where there's less fish present right at those spots, but more opportunity to store water on the landscape over longer periods of time. We're losing our glaciers. Right. I know in uh, Washington right now, there's a lot of research happening around it as well, where we know we're losing these glaciers and we need some other way of storing water higher up on the landscape. So there's, there is interest and a momentum, I think, mm-hmm. in that. And um, like in BC, we still don't have like a lot of pro- projects that have implemented. We, we, there's a few that are starting to dabble in that beaver analog thing. But I think like, yeah, in the next coming years, I'm, I'm excited to see sort of where that transitions. And if that person's interested, I could connect them to some of the people that have been thinking about it. For sure. Yeah, I'll let them know. Thank you. I have a question, and this has been a question of mine. It's a little bit off kilter from what we've been talking about. So we're going to switch focus a little bit here. But I've seen a whole bunch of different graphs that show that wetlands sequester double or large amounts of carbon comparative to you know a forest, just a standing boreal forest beside it. What is it about the wetland ecosystem that sequesters more carbon? I just I just don't understand what it is. And I'm hoping that you can maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I can. Just taking a step back from what I've been talking about with like this functional assessment tool, the reason we need this tool is because not all wetlands perform the same way. Okay. The general public might lose that, you know, that minute point there. Not all of them are good at carbon storage. Not all of them are good at flood attenuation. Some of them are. So there's a nuance there with, with carbon storage. So our peatlands, the ones that have that deep, rich, organic layer, so those would be our bogs and our fens, those are our banks of storage. They don't necessarily accumulate them quickly, but they accumulate them over time, and we're holding a lot of carbon in our, our peatlands. The further north you go in the province, the more fens and bogs you're going to see. When you're down in the lower mainland, I try to find the bogs and fens around here and, you know, I get so excited when I see them because they're they're harder to find down in the, the lower mainland. When you go up north to like the Prince George region mm-hmm. around there, fens are quite, they're one of the more dominant types of wetlands on the landscape. So those are our carbon storers and the other ones are, are estuaries. So our saltwater wetlands are ones that hold a lot of um, carbon. Oh, interesting. The other ones, so our mineral wetlands, they don't necessarily store carbon well, but they might cycle through them really quickly. Like so a marsh, for instance, it's more biologically productive. It has more nutrients in it, often because it's um, 
marshes tend to be situated close to a stream or a river, or they have like influences of nutrients coming in from just the surrounding landscape. And so they, they tend to be biologically rich and, and being these collectors of nutrients allows them to produce a lot of biomass quickly. The thing is, is that they also off gas uh, some of that as well. So I've heard studies of in the prairies, they're looking at marshes and restoration and trying to see what, uh, if, you know, if they were good at carbon capture. And it turns out that it might take 70 to 80 years before they start actually being carbon neutral or positive in terms of their sequestration, like after a restoration project. Wow. So there's nuances to uh, which ones are doing well. There's carbon markets out there. So um, there's groups that are, you know, being paid by either airlines or other uh, people that might use a lot of gas to, to try to pay into this blue economy. And I think it's either protecting our fens and bogs from further degradation is one of the tools that could be used. And then the other one would be to reconnect some of our coastal wetlands. Salt water, uh, there's a chemical process that's happening in, in that that reduces the amount of carbon dioxide that's emitted back into the atmosphere. Interesting. Yeah. So that's why those ones, the ones that are happening in freshwater systems don't necessarily have that process. So they're just, they're kind of cycling through it. They might still be more productive. So there's there's a lot of nuances in it. <laughs> there's sometimes you'll go to like a wetland boardwalk and you'll see like a sign that says it's doing all these things. And I go, I go to the site and I'm like, mm, maybe it's doing some of those things. But like, you know, you know, like a wine connoisseur will have like, um, they'll be able to taste the flavors of like, you know, cherry notes or tobacco notes. And wetlands are very much <laughs> like that. They all have their own flavor and qualities to them, which makes them really exciting. Each one you go to is a kind of a unique experience. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate that clarification because, you know, I see these graphs, I see all this research being translated onto a, a really nice kind of graphical representation and it, it's almost as if a blanket statement across like wetlands sequester this much carbon that's really interesting to know you know not all wetlands are going to be at the same pace excuse my ignorance here but what is a fen you know it's funny like we do like these intros to wetlands and we'll talk about the five classes so a fen is a peatland like you might be familiar with hearing of a bog a bog is mm -hmm. the other type of peatland in bc we have five classes of wetlands we have marshes shallow open water wetlands, swamps, bogs, and fens. Most people seem to be pretty familiar with the first four, and I can definitely like follow up on that if you want to. But for fens, it's a site that has peat that's 40 centimeters or deeper. Mm. But the vegetation on the surface is dominated more by grass-like species, graminoid species, rather than sphagnum moss. Sphagnum moss, if it's dominating a site, is generally in the bog category. You can have sphagnum in a fen. One of the differences in why the vegetation is different is that fens tend to be more connected to groundwater or to maybe some wicking of a nearby lake or stream. So they have a bit more nutrients in them than a bog does. They tend to be less acidic because they don't have as much sphagnum there. And this is the thing with nature. We like to put things in boxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like really, nature is just a mix of all these things happening that are influencing things. And then we put these categories onto them. So in some cases, you come to this like place where there's a thing that looks kind of like a bog, but also kind of like a fen. And it's probably in transition or it probably just wants to be that way. And we call them fogs because we just really don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. So true. Nature is inherently variable. When we try to manage it with these strict boundaries, it's just like, it just doesn't exist like that. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we, we categorize it. So yeah, I guess like 
you can be in ones that have like very little sphagnum and it's mostly uh, sedges. So sedges, like the grass-like species that tend to be the most dominant are these sedge species, which are like these, they look like grasses, but the flowering head is different. There's about 160 sedge species in like the Pacific coasts. Uh, some of them are the, the ones that, you know, are pretty common. You'll find in wetlands, there's probably a dozen that you'll you'll see quite regularly. You, you'll also find sedges, though, in marshes, too. So you got to be careful. You're also looking for that peat layer. <laughs> <laughs> so much of what you're saying is just like shooting me right back to my school days. Like sedges have edges. <laughs> That's how we remember. To Reeves are round. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and taking it back to my fish classes. Also, just quickly, side note, I was always saying sphagnum moss. How do you? How did you say it? I don't even know sphagnum? how I said it. Sphagnum? Yeah. Is that, the, uh, is that the correct way to say it? Have I been saying it wrong this entire time? I guess like everybody has a dialect, right? So um, yeah. I'm from Ontario. I probably shouldn't say if, if I'm saying it right or not. I also use the word soaker, and I found out that soaker is an Ontario word. Mm. Out here, we call it booter yeah. or... Uh, yeah. So <laughs> the cross cross country changes <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Is it the peat layer that is in the fog and the now I'm calling it a fog in the fen that is creating the attributes that make it a bigger carbon sequestration kind of model? Or is it the vegetation that that peat layer is producing that makes it? carbon uh, sequester more of that carbon yeah it's more the former so it's more the um, the peat layer mm. okay because if you could imagine both fens and bogs are nutrient poor relative to the other wetland types we have okay generally not as biologically productive i mean although fens tend to have slightly more than bogs just based on the hy hydrology the other thing i guess I, I should mention is the reason that they're building up the carbon layer is that the water table tends to remain quite stable throughout the year. So the water table at these sites is called sluggish or stagnant. Like it's not like moving very much at all. So that allows for this accumulation of plant and organic material to be deposited. And some of this can be happen over thousands of years. There's fens that I've been to up north and we were out with uh, Jim Pojar, who's like a well-known botanist. He's like Pojar, Pojar? Pojar, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. He took us to the site once. This is near where he lives. We run these things called wetland keeper courses. So he took us to one of his wetlands he's been studying and he stuck this pole into the ground and he told us that they carbon dated the bottom of the, the uh, soil there. And it was a 9,000-year-old wetland Whoa. that started 9,000 years ago with all this carbon being sequestered at the site. It was a lake uh, when it started, oh. and, and now it's this big fen you can walk on. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Really neat, really neat history. I guess, so, so for context, like the issues with protecting these things, one is like climate change is going to impact these a lot with the, the, the thaw further up north. So we're actually going to see the degradation of our fens and bogs up north because of climate change and the warming of our climate, which will exasperate how much carbon is released. But the other thing is um, if people try to drain these things, that's not good. Like that's mm -hmm. like, that's where we're releasing a lot of carbon back into the environment as well. So that's what, like when we're looking at this road intersect thing, we're, we're looking for potential for uh, ditches or things that might've inadvertently drained a wetland nearby. And so right. I, I think that's one of the things that we're, we're kind of worried about is, you know, road network is large in BC and a lot of people are trying to address that right now. Mm -hmm. And I think we just, want to build a tool that helps us better understand, you know, if we're 
are we losing a lot where these road intersections are happening? Right. Along the same line of, because we've mentioned it a couple of times throughout our conversation, is how many benefits wetlands have. Is there one benefit that you feel most people don't know about and probably would be surprised to find out about? I think I'm still really interested in hearing from First Nations on how they've used wetlands in the past and some of the foods that they've derived from the wetlands. And it's it's still this discovery of when you're working with a First Nation or an elder, they might share a piece of information that's totally novel and not well recorded or documented. And yeah, so I, th- I think that's always been interesting for me and it's like still excites me to, to hear sort of their perspective on things. Some of the key ones are probably flood mitigation, carbon storage, biodiversity. I think from a biodiversity lens, about a third of species at risk require wetlands for a portion of their life cycle. Oh, wow. But they only take up about five or six percent of our land base. So you could imagine like how critically important they are for those species. Like in the WESP tool, there's I think 17 related things. There's things all the way from like supporting pollinators to uh, the fish habitat or fish habitat support. So I think that storage of water and then that slow release, like in the summer months, can be really important for like headwater wetlands that we have around the the landscape. Uh, And I mean, there's connectivity between that and streams. Stepping back is just like, there's this whole relationship happening with the adjacent forest, with the adjacent streams. And I think we're still kind of uncovering that lens to a large degree. Um, Right. A colleague... Uh, talked about western toad western toad will breed there are you find them all across the province they'll breed it they'll breed in wetlands uh, of any size like we've seen them just breeding in little puddles essentially but they require that wetland for that for their aquatic life like so they'll, they'll breed and then they'll be terrestrial for the rest of their life and then just go back to the pond to breed yeah mm. but uh one a few amphibian biologists have been calling them the salmon of the wetlands because they're actually taking carbon out of the wetlands and carrying them onto the forest land base and being like this nutrient cycler. Because if you've ever been to like a wetland that has had a lot of toads or toadlets, you'll see um, there are thousands of them at once. And then all that, all those nutrients are coming out of the wetland and going back into the landscape. So there's sort of this interest in in seeing, you know, like how how much, how important are they to our actual like carbon cycling? Kind of like salmon and their studies, you know, a couple almost a couple of decades ago, yeah. now, I guess, about how they were being carried into the forest and, and providing nutrients up into the forest. That is so interesting. That was always the worst part of your day if you were driving to a block on an ATV and you came across a road that was being crossed by all the tiny little totally. frogs. And you're like, I can't go, I can't go to work. The frogs are in the way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it sounds like we, you know, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say I think we all have some research to do on, uh, understanding some wetlands a bit and if you want to check out some of this information that we've been talking about you can go to wetlandsworkforce.ca neil is involved in some awesome new projects that are out and about right now some of the material that that we researched and read before is is so informative so please get your hands on some of these documents and uh, uh, share them with with anyone that you think might have some of this knowledge if you're interested in workshops, uh, bcwf.bc.ca has a lot of our programming as well. Awesome. Neil, it's been so great chatting with you. I know I've learned a lot of information I didn't know. We do have one last question for you that is kind of a running theme at Timber Connect. 
you know, as someone who has probably seen interns and summer students and youth that you've worked with come and go, what would you say is one of the most common mistakes you notice these individuals making in their early points of their career or academic pursuits? Do you have any suggestions on how they can avoid that mistake? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I think there's a lot of very keen people that come into our programming, and I'd say maybe take the time to listen and learn from the, your peers around you. Occasionally, we'll have some really headstrong uh, people that join, and I'm not. Sometimes they come with a lot of knowledge, and I don't want to be just like discouraging of that. But there's also a lot to learn, and and it, depending on sort of how many jobs you've had in the past, uh, there's a, there's a lot to that. Sometimes I take for granted now that like people might not know, like in terms of just like the general job world. <laughs> but I would, I think maybe even just to take a step back, I think communication is such an important tool in your toolbox for whatever you want to do in your, uh, like in your future. We often hire for people that are good communicators, it's not just verbal, but written and being very careful and selective with their language and being a bit more methodical. You might not like your writing class if you're in school still. Um, <laughs> But I think communication is such a transferable skill, no matter where you end up. And I think will get you further than any of the knowledge that you, you gain from anything else. So I, I would just probably say, I, let me stick with that, like communication, make sure brush up on your writing, your verbal skills, your presentation skills, that will get you far. Mm -hmm. You can learn a lot of the technical things on the job. And I think it's it's more of, you know, coming with that skill in particular is is it's just really critical. I mean, we work with a lot of groups, a lot a lot of partnerships. We need to build a lot of trust and we need to be accurate with our information too. So and I guess that's where my like that humbleness thing comes in is that occasionally we'll get somebody who comes in and just says things that are, might not be true. <laughs> you know, or, or, and we're like, well, okay, like they've got a lot of like confidence. And I think confidence is great, but you know, couched with knowledge and learning and and I still generally approach life with trying to be humble uh, in terms of trying to like learn from others and know that I don't know everything still. But I think those two things are, are, are key to, I think, sort of just building trust among your team. And I mean, there will be opportunities for you to shine as you grow into your career and build more knowledge. And um, yeah, and some people can be wizards, right? Like they might know everything and I'll just let them keep talking. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's like, yeah, I think when people are younger, occasionally um, we'll get somebody who's, who's very, very confident. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they, they think they know everything because they just came out of school and their teachers are very wise. And I think it's it's good to learn as you're going and uh, take that time. And, but I would say like as, yeah, as a school communication, for sure. I think that's great advice. such good advice, you know, especially like the way that the workforce is going, those industry agnostic soft skills are so crucial because as you pointed out and those technical skills you learn in the field by being a sponge by I mean even look at when you, we started talking today one of the first things that you mentioned was how you you vividly remember the first time going into the field with someone who had all that knowledge and mm -hmm. those stick with you those those memories as you you grow in your career like those you know however many years it is now and you're still recalling and reflecting on that moment with with that individual so yeah, the mentorship and the soft skills and learning how to learn and talk and communicate. And yeah, I think that's some amazing advice. And I guess maybe just to add on to that, um, when you're applying to work, like spend time on your cover letter. Like the cover mm. letter for me is the thing I look at. <laughs> I don't, you, I need to read like how 
your experience connects to, you know, like, so just the, the resume on its own does not do enough. It, right. it, the cover letter is, it tells me how you write. It tells me how you communicate. It tells mm -hmm. me what to look for in your resume to make the connections to, and that you're making a pitch. So it is like, don't make any, like, don't make any grave errors on that cover letter when you're submitting it. Um, it is a really critical piece to getting your foot in the door. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Neil. I feel like I could talk to you forever. <laughs> There's so much about wetlands I didn't know. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Timber Connect. If you'd like to hear more, you can search for us on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Timber Connect or visit our website at timberconnect.ca. That's all for this episode. We'll catch you again next time.